welcome to the 22nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I serve as the host for these discussions. We are streaming on YouTube Live. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel, or you can email me or find me on Twitter at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word about the COVID calls, send suggestions for guests and topics, and please do feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. I also have new music there, which I hope you'll check out, courtesy of Amber Ferreira. I hope you will join us tomorrow for a discussion of COVID-19 with Lee Clark. Lee is a sociology professor at Rutgers University and the author of some extraordinary books, including Worst Cases, Terror and Catastrophe in the Popular Imagination and Mission Improbable, Using Fantasy Documents to Tame Disaster. As of today, there are 1,978,769 globally confirmed cases of COVID-19 according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. This number is up from 1,904,566 cases yesterday. 598,670 of those are in the United States, up from 572,169 yesterday. There are now a total of 25,239 reported deaths in the United States, up from 23,070 yesterday. In the South Korean city of Ansan, it's one of the most extraordinary sites of disaster memory in the world. I was taken there by my friend and colleague, Cheung John, and that's where we met Mrs. Pooja Chung. She's one of the parents of a child who died in the 2014 Sewol Ferry disaster. This disaster killed 294 people, mostly teens, on their way to a school trip at Jeju Island. The students left the classroom and they never returned. But the classroom remained and it became a beautiful testament to the lives that were so painfully cut short. What is now called the memory classroom, they took the contents of many classrooms, they moved everything to a building in the center of town. This memory classroom perseveres. Every chair, every blackboard, every locker, preserved as they were the day the students walked out of their classroom. Parents and friends have left notes They've left favorite foods and photographs of the students at each individual desk. Mrs. Chung pointed out to me a seat cushion she had made for her son. Many parents had made these. She made it, she told me, because she noticed later how hard the chairs were, and she worried that her son had actually endured sitting on this difficult, hard chair as he studied so hard. This is a testament in a small but important way to a parent's caring and grief that goes on after disaster is over. And yes, it's a sad place. I mean, what's sadder than an empty classroom? But it's also full of stories and photos and life, and it exists. While victims' families wait for a more formal memorial, something perhaps architecturally grand and ceremonially important to be built. The memory classroom and Pooja Chung have been on my mind these past months as we consider the loves and the lives lost in this collective disaster, the COVID-19 pandemic. Will a memorial ever be built? Where should it be built? What design should be adopted? Or will it be smaller in scale, more distributed? Maybe the memory classroom of COVID-19 is the emergency department of hospitals around the world. wanted to talk to some experts to help me think through this issue of memorials and COVID-19. So let me introduce today's guests. Jay Aronson is the founder and director of the Center for Human Rights Science at Carnegie Mellon University, where he is also a professor of science, technology, and society in the history department. His current project focuses on the documentation and analysis of police-involved fatalities and deaths in custody in the United States, 
and he's the author of a 2016 book, Who Owns the Dead? The Science and Politics of Death at Ground Zero, a book that analyzes the recovery, identification, and memorialization of the victims of the 9-11 World Trade Center disaster. Adia Benton is an Associate Professor of Anthropology and African Studies at Northwestern University, where she is affiliated with the Science in Human Culture program. Her first book, HIV Exceptionalism, Development Through Disease in Sierra Leone, won the 2017 Rachel Carson Prize, awarded by the Society for Social Studies of Science to the best book in the field of science and technology studies with strong social or political relevance. Her body of work addresses transnational efforts to eliminate health disparities and inequalities, the role of ideology in global health and public health responses to epidemics. Jay and Adia, thank you so much for joining me on COVID calls today. Thanks. Thank you, it's wonderful to be here. So I'd like to remind people that you can ask questions throughout the conversation today. Just put them in the uh, chat of YouTube Live, or you can tweet them at me and just be sure to tag at US of, at US of Disaster if you're going to send them by Twitter. And that method has been working pretty well. So please do get your questions in. I've been starting these calls uh, just by asking the guests how things are going in their own towns where they are. So Jay, let me come to you first. How are things in Pittsburgh? Uh, sorry, I was just checking to make sure I wasn't on mute. Um, things are uh, actually um, going fairly well here. We're very lucky that we have uh, both a decent governor and uh, decent local officials. Um, we also uh, are a relatively small city that is uh, moderately dense, but not, um, not extremely dense. So we're able to social distance fairly well. Uh, the um, the latest I was just checking on the latest numbers. Uh, we currently have 893 uh, confirmed cases in the county, uh, uh, which is Allegheny County. Um, there, as of this morning, there are 24 deaths. Uh, the um, the interesting thing about uh, Pittsburgh is that it's a city of about 300,000, and there are about 800,000 in the uh, in the um, county itself. So uh, it's a it's a place that's um, in uh, large part suburban. Um, so uh, 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 so uh, you know, I would I would say that we we have not been affected um, uh, like New York. And I think one of the things that I've been thinking about is the regional nature of this uh, of this crisis, um, and the fact that all of us are in it in all fifty states, but some of us aren't really seeing it or aren't really feeling it uh, in the same way. We have had neighbors. Uh, we had a neighbor who came back from Europe uh, who was quite sick. Um, and we know stories, uh, but it's nothing like what's going on in New York uh, and um, in uh, Detroit and in New Orleans and in a few other places. Um, so we're, we're faring quite well uh, for the moment. Adia, you're in Chicagoland. You're in I am Park? In or? I live in Chicago. Okay. How are things there? Um, so it looks like we're about to, we're, we're, peak, we're going to hit our peak. We just... Um, I'm actually looking at the numbers now because I wasn't sure what happened since yesterday. I got, um, I get frequent updates from my spouse who works in the trauma center at the University of Chicago. Um, but we have 15,000 confirmed cases in Cook County alone. Um, as you know, our governor has been in um, battles with Trump, uh, not this week, but in previous weeks about testing and everything and like that. Um, city is actually... I'd say pretty good considering uh, the health department's actually run by a former EIS officer. So we have like a very different, and she used to be, I, I don't know if she's still doing this, but she does like daily phone calls or whatever, where people do Q and A. So um, it looks like hospitals in the area are actually going to be at capacity at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and they're going to open up. They have a set of, sort of alternative spaces, including at the University of Chicago. Some people have already been moved to the old hospital. So there's a lot of ramping up and a lot of preparation here. And how did things uh, unfold at Northwestern? Did they do a complete shutdown all at once or was it uh, slow and evolving? Uh, our, shut <laughs> our shutdown was pretty intense. It just happened. One day it was like, don't drops. come back. Wow. Yeah, don't come back. Your office is being fumigated, decontaminated, whatever that looks like, I have no idea. But apparently my office is sealed off with blue tape. I have no clue, haven't seen it. I, I haven't been back to my office 
since early March. So, Are they talking um, at either one of the campuses where you work, are they talking about fall term yet? <laughs> yeah, well, oh. As far as as far as we're concerned, uh, we we get emails um, uh, that that basically tell us that uh, we're exploring all options, including not having students come back, including delaying to 2000, you know, including delaying the semester, uh, having a hybrid model where the students who want to or or have to or are able to come back will come back and we'll do some sort of hybrid live remote uh, teaching. I think nobody really knows. Um, we were lucky that we were actually on spring break uh, when all of this went down. And uh, so the university uh, officials who I actually think have done a great job of, uh, of thinking things through and uh, dealing with contingencies that us faculty and staff don't even think of, uh, you know, in terms of students who are stuck here and students who can't come back and students with uh, various needs that need to be met by the university. So th there are all kinds of complications. And I think Carnegie Mellon's uh, administration have done a, a great job uh, with um, dealing with all of this. So basically Wednesday of uh, spring break, we were told that we were moving remote, which we all knew, um, but they wanted to know what they were doing before they made the announcement. So um, we've been, um, you know, we, we had the luxury of having a couple of days to to deal with it, we didn't just get like get to our offices and, and uh, be told to go away. But now you can't even get on campus. I was bringing my kids to play soccer on the um, field, and then one day uh, they went down on their own and were told to go away uh, by either a police officer or security. So the campus is totally closed. Um, there was a small college called Chatham College up the street, uh, or Chatham University now, which was Chatham College, uh, and we were able to go up there. But now the um, security or police uh, officers there are also shooing everyone off the field. Um, so yeah, everything's shut down here. So let's turn to memorialization. Nadia, let me start with you. How did you come to this topic in your work? And we can talk about your, your recent book or any other you know, places where it's intersected with your work, but how did you find memorialization as a topic? Um, by accident. So I, <laughs> because it's, it's actually related to my new work, the book that's supposed to be due in like a few weeks, but not going to get that done. Um, <laughs> um, so I had been actually interested in a few different ways of thinking about memory. So Sierra Leone, as some people know, is sort of an interesting place for memory studies, um, particularly because of the war. And so there had been a lot of, um, just, and it's sort of an experimental space for, for truth and reconciliation mm -hmm. in the post-war period. And so a lot of questions about historical memory and cultural memory and all of those things, collective memory arise, not just from, well, from how do you talk about war and its aftermath, but also the historical memory of slavery and the slave trade. Um, so you might be familiar with Rosalind Shaw's work. Um, and so I, I'd been sort of interested in that, but I was actually trying to work on questions of institutional memory. So how is it that we come into these moments of disaster or you know, health emergencies or whatever and forget everything? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Suddenly, you know, we, we, we're rarely prepared. And so what ha you know, my, my experience had been working with NGOs where there's a sort of rapid turnover of expatriates but then a kind of continuity amongst local staff. And so how do people hold memory about institutional work and institutional working and how those things interact with the community? But because of the work I was doing in the post-conflict period, a lot of the work, even if I wasn't working explicitly on um, war-related injury and war-related loss, a lot of the work that I was doing was about how people what does social repair look like? How are people trying to make sense of living and working side by side with people who actually might have done them harm? Um, how do you reckon with, think about um, all of the sort of mass death, mass displacement? How do you hold on and, and um, how do you hold, how do you kind of hold on to the past, forgive people, but also kind of proceed 
Um, and this, so that's sort of like how I got into it was thinking about how institutions remember or forget, mm -hmm. kind of reproduce the same mistakes over and over again, but working with people who are constantly struggling with or struggling against um, the historical traumas of war, of enslavement, of all of these other kinds of um, tra traumatic events. Well, let's deal with this because you were, you were writing about HIV AIDS also. Yeah. Right. So we're layering an extremely slow disaster of slavery and then civil war, truth yes. and reconciliation, and now we're layering HIV AIDS on top of that. Right. And, you know, one of the arguments in my book is that, you know, it, how did AIDS actually become a problem to be tackled when there actually wasn't a lot of AIDS? Um, and so that's, I mean, that was also another, that's another layer in the sense that's like, well, what do you do with this thing that has global significance and in which Africa is sort of globally signified as the place where AIDS is and the place where AIDS ravages, ravages populations and that's not happening in Sierra Leone. Um, though I have many friends who passed away from HIV infections. So how is that sort of, um, I mean, to some extent what we're dealing with is if we're going, AIDS sort of stands in for something in Sierra Leone. Um, it stands in for a bunch of dis, a different, lots of different kinds of uh, disrepair or things that happen in the in sort of social upheaval, um, and in some ways it revealed many of the fractures in the health system. So how is it that something that is not everyone's problem gets this lion share lion share of the resources um, as people are dying from other things, as people are dying from, you know. Basic, are basic things like typhoid, malaria, uh, loss of fever. So um, yeah, it's the there are all of these layers that kind of play out in this moment. So, what's the human toll of AIDS in Sierra Leone? You know, I don't even know hmm. because I and the <laughs> so we had a prevalence of something like one percent when I first moved there. Um, there was an overestimation and. It, the counting should be good, but it's not as good as it it could be. Um, I think at the time we had just a tens of thousands of deaths, and that so that would have been smaller than any. Um, that's an estimation on the basis of what you know, because most most people are dying. Most people would have been dying at the time of any kind of basically of opportunistic infections. Am I allowed to um, jump in and ask questions? Is is that is that uh, is that <laughs> okay do. by the by the host? Absolutely. Great. So, so I, it's a two-part question. It's the same question for both issues. Um, in in some parts of Africa where I'm familiar, at the time where you were doing your work, whether AIDS, uh, where there was AIDS, it wasn't necessarily spoken of. It was a right. kind of silent thing that you just didn't speak of it. Um, you know, you died of something else. Uh, right. And no, of course you didn't have AIDS or have HIV. So I'm curious whether that was spoken of like openly there. And then the second part of the question, question is, is actually the same question. When, in your experience, when you were interacting with people, not ostensibly not about the Civil War, was mm -hmm. the Civil War spoken of or was it a silent past? Like, did people grapple with these things verbally or did you just right. see them trying to work that it, work it out kind of quietly in their head? So the first question is interesting because the first person that I knew who died of AIDS in Sierra Leone definitely didn't die of AIDS in Sierra Leone, if that makes sense. So um, I, I and, the, and, and the way, and I, yeah, so she, and this was sort of the aftermath, there wasn't, actual so there wasn't good therapy a therapy was not readily available or easily available someone was slipping her money every month so that she could buy it from this um special medical medicine vendor person a pharma pharmacist i think it was a pharmacist i'm not sure um so people who were really involved with hiv um as activists as um who were people, those people were probably, if they were to pass away, they were more likely to have identified as having been HIV positive. Um, so that's one 
thing, or they would have identified, their deaths, deaths would have been identified as AIDS deaths with a, an asterisk because they probably would have died of something else, right? Um, so I'd say some people were very open and there are other people who I'd never have known because of how they actively avoided being identified as HIV positive. And that, I'd say that was very clear. And that was, that mar that was marked very, I mean, again, because the numbers were small. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there were like, I want to say there were maybe 15,000 people who were on ARVs or something at the time mm -hmm. when I was working there. So knowing who dies is actually the harder part. You know, death certificates and things like that are not, no. death registration is actually not well established in many places mm -hmm. right. outside of. As well as cause of death. And I think that's right. what we're seeing. We're, we're actually seeing that right now in this context. Um, right. Not everybody's getting tested. Not everybody's dying of COVID-19. We just, so, yeah, it's some I acute think, respiratory. Yeah, I think whatever. we're in a similar situation, yeah. And, oh, I, I didn't yeah. know if you wanted to, Civil nope. War. Yeah, go ahead. Because that's just, so, war is a marker. War is like a time marker. So you say things in, like, oh, well, that was during the war. Mm -hmm. Oh, it well, during the war, this, and I, I did life histories of a lot of the people I worked with, and, you know, you can't, People, anyone who's of a certain age would not be able to talk about life without also talking mm -hmm. about war. Mm -hmm. um, you would also see, and so when I first moved to Sierra Leone, which was 2003, I think, um, there was a lot of, um, there were all kinds of tensions and there, it, some of them were unspoken, but someone would say, oh, well, that's because of this thing that happened during the war. You, you understand. So that is, all good, now, you know, but people don't necessarily want to talk about their experiences, mm -hmm. which is a very different thing. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of work about people trying to actively forget. So I do wonder, like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do right. under these? So many of us, I think, are all entering some form of trauma, like <laughs> something that's right. traumatic to us. Jay, can I bring you in on, on this and, and yeah, ask absolutely. you kind of the same question, which is how, how you found yourself working on memorials? Uh, by accident. Uh, <laughs> that's two, we're two for two. I, I think, I think, uh, I mean, I think that's a, maybe a lesson for all of the young uh, academics out there that you never quite know where you're going to end up when you start. Um, but I was, uh, uh, I was working on a project on, um, uh, the identification of the missing after conflict and disaster, um, particularly around how DNA was changing um, uh, that process and, and making it possible, possible to identify people who previously would not have been uh, identifiable. Um, and this was an outgrowth of my uh, dissertation work on the development of DNA identification in the American legal system and how it was changing our uh, understanding of um, post-conviction rights for people who are claiming innocence. Um, I, I have to be honest that I was initially quite reluctant to get um, too far into the September 11th story, uh, particularly because when I was writing, um, or when I was uh, starting this project, we weren't even at the, um, the 10th anniversary and it was still quite politically contentious. Uh, and I just, I just felt that it was, um, you know, there was that Rudy Giuliani thing that whenever anyone asked him a question, he would say 9-11. And I was like, you know, I don't want to, I just don't want to touch that. Um, but I, but I realized it was initially, I thought it was an interesting case study to compare to other places that I was interested in looking at um, with colleagues uh, in large part, whether it was uh, in um, uh, Rwanda or in Cambodia, Argentina, um, El Salvador, um, other places in uh, Latin America were actually, uh, humanitarian or, or uh, human rights oriented um, DNA identification really got its start. And then in Yugoslavia, uh, of course, in the former Yugoslavia, where it was um, brought to kind of uh, um, uh, industrial scale, if you want to use those terms. Um, I, I thought that the American context was interesting insofar as it um, seemed like a success story because they were actually able to identify um, a large percentage of the fragments that were identifiable. Obviously, there were there were lots of fragments that were unidentifiable, 
Um, and, and so there were two things that interested me. One was this um, controversy about bringing the remains to Fresh Kills landfill for, uh, uh, for identification. Um, and then questions about where the unidentified remains would be stored. And so I was, I was going to write about two, those two issues because they were different from the other uh, case studies that I, were in, that I was looking at um, or that the team that I had assembled was looking at. And very quickly, I realized that the way that families who were um, criticizing the response were reacting made no sense if I didn't go back and understand the beginning of the story. Um, and the, and the um, kind of analysis of those cases led me directly into the question of memorialization, um, in part because there was, there was a desire um, that unidentified remains not be left on Fresh Kills landfill or in Fresh Kills landfill. Um, and then there was this kind of nagging question of what do we do with the remains that the, uh, that the medical examiner was required to hold in perpetuity because, um, uh, because uh, there was this promise made by the medical examiner to never stop the effort to identify that will never rest um, until we know who all of these little bits of bones or flesh belong to. So th these were active uh, cases for the medical examiner and they had to be kept somewhere. And a decision was made initially that they would be kept at the site um, for various reasons uh, in, a, in a kind of storage facility. And then over time, as the memorial and the museum were being planned, Initially, they were meant to be two separate facilities, but because of cost overruns, they were squished together. And as they were squished together, the repository that the, uh, that the um, medical examiner was required by the, the promise that had been made to the families to keep going, got integrated into the museum space below ground. And then this became a major issue for families, a small group of families, but very active families, who were arguing that it was, um, uh, that their loved one's remains had become a kind of uh, museum call, like a, 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 an attraction that yeah, people would, yeah. yeah, that people would come to the site, not to pay respects to their loved ones, but to kind of be in the same space as the remains of these people who died in this significant event. And so um, trying to unpack all of that, not being an anthropologist, uh, not being a sociologist, being someone who's trained in, in uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm undisciplined. I'm sort of partly trained in a lot of different disciplines. Um, and, and trying to unpack that, I, I got very interested in how we memorialize um, the dead, not just how we identify them, but what do we do with that information once we have it? How do we remind people what happened in the space? How do we... Um, how do we do justice to the people who have died? And what does that mean? Um, and in the context of 9-11, it was obviously a terrorist attack. And uh, we ended up engaging in um, multiple wars. I mean, we're still engaged in the war over 9-11 right. uh, in places that had nothing to do with the original attacks. And so we're still fighting in the name of the people who died. And, and what does that mean? And what was, was the purpose of the memorial to remind us why we were fighting? Or was it to say something about the lives that were lost or was it to distinguish us from the terrorists who committed these acts and so i yeah and so i got into these i mean i really got into these questions um somewhat accidentally or or but i mean i would say by necessity more than accidentally um, but it wasn't certainly wasn't what i intended to do when i started there's so many aspects of of this that i want to i want to talk about more one of them you know, when I think about the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, I remember the fight there about the location of the names. Yeah. So there's two, for people who haven't been there, there's two very large reflecting pools which are on the <clears throat> sites of the footprints of the two of the Twin Towers and the names are engraved on panels around all four sides. But families had a lot to say about who should be adjacent to whom and whether or not and so at the core of this question was a sort of a deserving, like who deserves what kind of memorial, mm -hmm. basically. And I wonder, you know, how you thought about that, how you, when you were trying to document this story, and I think Adia, to you as well, we think about, you know, 
on this issue of the of the Civil War versus other kinds of disasters in the cases you've looked at, does that, does that seem to be an argument that people engage in, that some are deserving of memorialization and others are not? It, so, I wonder, can I just, because I just, it just occurred to me, I didn't mention the Ebola. So, yeah. the, and this, because I, I hadn't, the other accident with Ebola, and I think Jay will probably have something to say that might um, dovetail with this, but I actually started with the museum, the CDC museum in Atlanta, which mm -hmm. memorialized, I was, it's not really memorial, it commemorated, it's a, celebrated the CDC's inter, like very large massive deployment, the largest the, ever. The Ebola deployment. The 20, Ebola deployment right, in 2014, 2015. 2014. Okay. Um, it's the largest ever most, and they had a year long exhibit that basically drew materials from mm. all of West Africa and the CDC investment. So that's how I started this part of the project. And mm. then I knew that there was an Ebola museum or I was, I was reminded that there was an Ebola museum in Sierra Leone that I went to find. Oh. It was not really there. It was there, but it wasn't there. I know it was one of those things. You mean it's on it's unbuilt or so I wrote this piece about it. So so there there are a few different ways that the story sort of unfolds. So I, I went there, I actually got on the plane from Atlanta, went to Sierra Leone, rainy day in August, I think, of 2017, because to look for this thing. And so I I got this driver, I just said, I know it's somewhere near Anjala Anjala University. Let's go find it. I emailed somebody on LinkedIn that I knew was probably associated with it. Hmm. Texted, I found him, texted him, got there, and it was a building hmm. on the campus of this university donated by like astrophysics or somebody, like some, some random department. It's a very rural university, so it feels random. And it had a sign, but there was nothing inside. And you know, he said, oh, should I get the guy to get you the key? And I was like, there's nothing inside, so what? But the idea is that it would be a place where Sierra Leoneans got a chance to tell their stories, but it was also going to become an archive hmm. where they stored all of this clinical information that international researchers could access. Very strange. And then a bunch of people, and, and, and maybe do, this. so a lot of, someone was collecting these oral histories from families that had lost a lot of people and maybe those could be um, on display and kind of travel to rural areas that had had lots of people who died, sort of lots of ancestors. So that became a, you know, so that, that was contested because it was mostly financed by these international donors. Um, I think the only local sponsor was the Sierra Leone Association of, of Journalists. So there's that, but then there's this outside of Kinema Government Hospital, which is one of the first, it, or one of the, the first hospitals to treat people for Ebola because it was a loss of fever hospital and a loss of fever laboratory. So it, it, the nation's premier virologist lived and died there. Um, and they built, they built a little monument in front of the, the Kinema Government Hospital. And what I found striking about it, so they listed the name of the person the, and their profession and their age and the the cleaners the people who clean so obviously those would have been the people who were most at risk the people who clean the hospital yeah, sure yeah. the cleaners are listed in the i couldn't figure out what the hierarchy was because it wasn't alphabetical it wasn't by age i believe it might have been by rank and so there are these kinds of um I think there were, I can't imagine what the conversation was like, is what I'm trying to say about whose names got yeah. listed there, but they were certainly people who were affiliated with the government hospital, so. That, that's really interesting, and that's similar to uh, debates that happened at the um, World Trade Center site. That, um, there's an additional challenge uh, in this case that the World Trade Center attack was, a very lo was an extremely local event uh, in some ways, because it happened in New York, um, and the first responders came from the kind of you know the 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 borough, the various outlying boroughs for the most part, um, and were from like old old ethnic communities. Um, it was 
it was uh, national because it was obviously a terrorist attack. It was international because people from various countries died. Um, and it was, you know, it was regional as well because uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, um, people were impacted uh, more. And, but very quickly, a kind of small group of people gained power over the site, over its redevelopment, because, you know, this is the most, this is the, you know, the most powerful symbol of the most powerful financial capital in the world. Um, ironically, uh, the, the, twin, the Twin Towers were never successful as real estate, but they came to represent the city, um, you know, in the minds of New Yorkers and in the minds of the world. Um, and, you know, this was all about commerce. It was in lower Manhattan, close to Wall Street. And so we had to, we had to get business back. Um, and this whole thing with the, like, make the economy go boom uh, is, uh, well, there are two, <laughs> two, two registers of boom. Um, but th that was the idea behind the World Trade Center site. We need to remember the people who were there. But more importantly, we need to show those terrorists that they're not going to scare us. We need to show them they're not going to shut down our economy. We need to get moving. Um, so there was all of this additional politics. And remember the three, um, you know, you have Rudy Giuliani, you have Mike Bloomberg, and you have George Pataki. Those are all three people who have very national uh, uh, political aspirations. And so that was in the mix. There was all kinds of stuff kind of in the mix. Um, and so the families felt like they didn't matter because there were all of these competing priorities and they felt shut out. Many families felt shut out if they were more working class or middle class and they weren't part of the New York elite or the US elite, they felt like they got shut out of the story. So that, that explains a lot of the opposition to what was going on. Um, but then there were also the first responders who wanted to show that they were doing their duty. They were in the line of fire. They were being, uh, you know, they were, they, were, they were responding to a tragedy. Uh, and they, you know, they ended up losing large numbers of, of Brother, brothers and sisters that they wanted to show, you know, they wanted to be listed separately. Um, and then there were questions about, well, my loved one hated the people they worked with. Um, why should they be listed with the people they worked with? Or, you know, my loved one loved the people they worked with. I want them to be listed with, with, uh, uh, with, their, um, with the people who they died with. And so you had all of these questions and different, nobody could quite come to an agreement. And part of the reason that it was contentious was because they didn't feel like they were part of the process. And so they ended up building an algorithm, uh, a, a computer program, excuse my dog. They, they ended up building a computer program that was a kind of compromise where each person could choose. The, the, the first responders were kind of listed off to the side and then each civilian could choose up to four people they wanted to be listed with. And I think, also, they could list people they didn't want to be listed with. And then the computer program spat out this whole arrangement. The architect, the person who was designing it, wanted to do it in a kind of aesthetic way. Um, and so all of, these, uh, all of these controversies, I mean, they're, they're human, they're very human, but it also shows that when people don't feel like they have a say, they fight over things that don't necessarily matter um, if they had been brought in at the earlier stages and said, listen, we're going to figure out a way to do this and not everyone's going to win, but we're going to listen to everyone. We're going to hear what everyone has to say. So you end up with this, um, you end up with this uh, thing called meaningful adjacency, <laughs> where people are listed adjacent to at least a few people who they should be listed near. Um, and the, the first responders are kind of listed separately, but their ranks aren't if I remember correctly, I, I haven't been there in a few years, but like there's a thing about their, their ranks aren't listed or um, you know, they're, they're listed with their group, but it doesn't differentiate them by hierarchy. And then we know that there were at least a few people who were undocumented, who were working in the restaurants or working as uh, you know, service uh, people who probably aren't listed. Um, and so the, 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 the way that the way that things are, um, the way that people are listed and remembered, it's always political. I mean, there's, there's, whether it's petty politics or big politics, there's always a kind of political um, dimension to it. And, and who's a, who, like, who's a victim who deserves to be included? Should they be ranked? And I, you know, I think, I, I'm not surprised in, in a West African country that there would be that kind of hierarchy from 
the doctors or the administrators down to the um, down to the kind of um, the the people who are uh, who are cleaning. Um, it doesn't surprise me, but I, I think that we're going to have a lot of these debates um, in the context of the COVID nineteen situation, particularly in New York, where we're we're talking we're already at three times the number of people or more than three times the number of people uh, who died on 9-11. I mean, it's astonishing. And it's a different situation because it's not visual. Um, we don't necessarily see them. They're dying either in hospital rooms or in their homes. Um, and so it's, it's unclear how we even think of them. Um, so I can, I, I'm just trying to kind of, I'm wondering if 9-11 is a good comparison um, and what we can learn from it, because the situations are so different. What is the same is that a region is being decimated by a, a tragedy. And this one seems to be going on, you know, it's going on for longer. Um, not that the 9-11 case um, doesn't still have people dying from that initial exposure, but um, it's, you know, I'm just sort of thinking through these things in real time. And Scott and I have had a couple of conversations about this offline, um, but it's unclear. It's unclear what's gonna happen. remind people that uh, you're listening to COVID calls and please do get your questions in to YouTube live chat or you can uh, get a question in on Twitter and I am talking with Adia Benton and Jay Aronson about memorials and we were just making that turn to talking about COVID-19 after talking about Sierra Leone and talking about 9-11. So let's talk about this. Adia, uh, we're, I hate to say, but we're still early days in the United States, and we're not even at early days yet in Africa, in Latin America, this is a pandemic. Um, what kind of things are you looking for right now as you think about how it's gonna be remembered or how you think memorialization might work with this? I mean, you've been thinking about Ebola and you told this right. incredible story about going to the CDC and getting on a plane and going to Sierra Leone. I mean, you're tracking a pandemic memorial in that in that sense, do you think COVID-19 will be transnationally remembered in that way? What kind of things are you looking for in this moment? That's, that's such an interesting question. I've been thinking about it, like, will it be remembered? I mean, are we, I, I'm worried that we'll still be, actually, you know, there's an, an inverse question. When I first started presenting work about the Ebola memorialization process and the memory politics, um, someone said, didn't this just happen? Like, how can you even, like, how can you even have a museum? How can you have an exhibit? How can you have all of this sort of commemorative pageantry, so to speak, built up around this? Or how can you be, how can you even begin to do that in this, when people will be dealing with the legacy of it for, at least for some time? Um, that said, I think we're also already seeing these sort of um, small acts of memorialization. So, you know, what, there are people who are very actively saying, say their name, this is what they were about, this is what they were doing at the time. Um, so we're getting that in the social media, sort of ephemera of social media, I feel. Um, I'm hearing a lot of stories. And these are being told in the form of stories, almost like the early 9-11 stuff. Here is so-and-so, he worked in the World Trade Center. Um, all of these kinds of um, interesting questions. My sense is that um, we may be able to commemorate, I think we'll, we'll need to think of, or what the collective decision might be is what things are worth worth remembering, which things are worth solid, sort of um fixing in place and time to, to, to kind of talk about. So, you know, I keep thinking, I think in terms of movies, like I was just thinking about the, we were talking about it being in New York, but there were, there was a plane that was coming from, it was the LA Boston plane. Was it, was it not? I think it was, there was an LA Boston plane cause it had the producers from Frasier and like all of these Hollywood folks um, hmm. were, were commuters. Yep. Um, we got the, the airplane hero story. We got um, the story of the terrorists themselves. We got these, 
you know, what happened on that day. But I, I feel like part of it is about the extent to which we can ca- encapsulate heroes or sort of demarcate heroes, um, really f- articulate um, victim stories in ways that, that allow for some form of emotional or collective catharsis. But I'm not sure what any kind of stable memorialization would look like. Can, can I jump yeah, yeah, in? The, the, yeah. yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, well, I just wanted to ask, in, in Sierra Leone or in West Africa, is there, is there a um, desire to commemorate people who are, uh, you know, who maybe died in the Ebola um, uh, epidemic or who die in this way? Is, or, I mean, uh, the, the <clears throat> idea of memorials and memorial museums have, have lots of origin stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is in non, you know, non-US, non-European right. countries trying to make sense of mm. post of, of colonial uh, uh, wars of uh, liberation or of civil wars that emerge when the liberation party turns sour. Um, you know, is, is memorialization in the way that the West has traditionally done it with, you know, monuments and lists of names or um, you know, lists of battles where people have died in war. Is it, is it a thing? Like, you know, we're already thinking about memorialization. What will mm-hmm. it look like right. in the U.S.? Is that something that people talk about in, in uh, Sierra Leone? I mean, I don't want to say West Africa in general. Right. But. You know, that's, I, I've, I've been actually thinking about that too, which is because when I talk to people about not just that museum, but others, actually that museum in particular, the person who, the person who's, who came up with it is a British guy who I think, well, he's, he's, I don't know how much I should be giving away. Yeah. I wrote about it. It's fine. Whose, whose wife is from the area where the, yeah. um, you can almost predict, you can almost predict exactly the, the story, but no, it wasn't, it almost wasn't his, but he was with another guy who worked in like South Sudan, Uganda, Rwanda, mm-hmm. and said, well, they liked having the way to memorialize this, so why wouldn't these people? And I thought mm-hmm. it was an odd thing to hear, but <laughs> because I was like, so whose idea is it? And you know, a lot of, but it, it, I guess to some extent, there were people who were local who absolutely, so the groundbreaking ceremony for this thing was very much driven by local politicians who wanted to say, we were the people who had the knowledge. Mm-hmm. We were the ones who want to, we want to assert our expertise mm-hmm. as people who fought off Ebola, as people who took care, as people who recognized this. And, and so I think it depends on the struggle, right? Mm-hmm. So there were people who, who wanted to just have what is a normal memorial, which is a funeral. Mm-hmm. Right? There are a lot of people who really just wanted to be able to put their relative to rest. Yeah. Not everyone wants public recognition right. or a public death. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone, I think that was a major, and, and under the circumstances, Ebola, Ebola made it very difficult for people to have normal, like normal burial. Mm-hmm. Right. It made it, you know, because that's how transmission was yeah. actually also occurring. So, so did so in that case, and I think that's also happening. Uh, that's happening in happening this case. Here. I know. Uh, I know. Um, a friend of my uh, wife's from college. Her husband's mother died uh, from COVID in New York, and and he was uh, positive as well. And so he was unable to even go to the burial, and he was un and he you know he was unable to see his mom, um, and she basically, you know, she died alone and was buried in a very untraditional way in the Jewish faith, which was, I don't even know if, you know, I don't know who showed up at the burial. Um, and, and so we have this weird thing, even people who are dying now who aren't necessarily dying of COVID, you can't mourn them in the same way that you would ordinarily. And so I've, you know, I was uh, talking to Scott about doing Zoom shivas where we have a, a bunch of people not together comforting the, the mourner, but on Zoom. Um, and so, so I, I think in one way that will mark death in the COVID, in, in a kind of epidemic or pandemic era. 
And when you can't necessarily mourn your loved one in the moment, does that make some sort of memorial later on more, um, more necessary or comforting? Um, obviously, the one thing I learned when I interviewed families was there were no, um, there were sort of patterns that you could detect, but no two families felt exactly that the same way about death, about mourning, about grief, about some, you know, some people called, talked about closure and others said, there's no such thing as closure. Come on. It's a silly, it's even silly to talk about that idea. Um, mm -hmm. it's, as a kind of, um, you know, it's a term, it's a, it's a trope that we use to talk about mourning and, and uh, reconstruction and sort of reconciliation and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so I, I wonder if the, the, the strangeness, like in the case of 9-11, where a lot of people didn't get bodies, and how do you mourn your loved one if you don't have bodies? And that might make a memorial more um, important or some form of memorialization more important. So we have that like very individual kind of grief-oriented question. But then there's a larger question of, are these deaths somehow caused by the negligence of the state or the, um, uh, the inability of the state to properly care for its citizens? And do we need to remember something about the context in which they died? So we have these kind of very personal grief oriented things or communal kinds of things, but then there's a bigger, um, there's a bigger political question. And it, it reminds me of the tree of life uh, shootings um, in, in my neighborhood um, a year and a half ago that, you know, these were individual people who belonged to families and belonged to our community. But it, there was also this kind of white supremacist terrorist uh, dimension as well. And so, you know, we're kind of mediating all of these things. I think we should stay with this for a minute because this, this issue of the role of memorial as reaching closure or serving a therapeutic function is an important one. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that if we look at memorials around the world, and I'm thinking again of what you were talking about, idea with the truth and reconciliation process itself as a kind of form of memorial, a lot of memorials function in very um, strident political terms. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking about the um, recent change in Spain and you know, the moving of even the location mm -hmm. of the of Francisco Franco's body um, you know that that the politics that a memorial can even be formed within a regime which remembers to a certain point and but then the regime ends and memorial takes on a new cast I mean look at what's happened in Santiago with the opening of the memorial museum there going much further than some people even now would probably be comfortable with politically, but, um, and, and also on the outside, it looks, its names, its photos, it seems to be functioning in this sort of grief, you know, uh, closure, uh, kind of therapeutic mode, but boy, you get inside there and the, the politics are strong. Um, and it makes me think now with, COVID-19, that the political encounter of the pandemic is so different around the world. I mean, not even just around the world, but even within the United States, the interpretation yes. politically of the pandemic in New York City versus um, Florida, let's say, or Texas, right now is quite different. So yeah. can there be one, I mean, I, it's kind of a normative question. Should there be one, one meaning or is it more our job just to try to document and collect these stories as we go along and see that these memorials are actually functioning as venues for politics? I don't know, when I raise that, sometimes people say, no, this is, why do you make everything political? I get asked that a lot, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, to, the question- <laughs> It's, it's just public observing. health, it's absolutely- yeah. Everything's obviously, and, yeah. and, and we hear this a lot with the shootings. You know, can you please let it, let it let it end before you start making it political. But I don't think we have that no. luxury or option. Mm -hmm. And to pretend like it's that these memorials will not be political and different depending on where they are seems to me mm -hmm. naive. But it raises huge challenges on how we do this this work. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I can very easily imagine if we're going to get in a, into a kind of memorial museum where we're trying to tell stories. I could imagine two different types of museums. I could imagine three, one just focusing on the public health side and the, and the medicine and, 
the heroes who uh, who cared for, for these people and put their lives on the line and uh, still showed up to work at grocery stores and uh, pharmacies and those kinds of things and doctors and garbage collectors and you know all of that. Um, but I could imagine two very different political narratives. One is Trump and his administration really screwed up. And the other one is the China virus, uh, you know, the, the Chinese government uh, either, um, you know, released this thing into the wild intentionally or unintentionally, depending on which theory you look at. And then they didn't tell us and we didn't have enough time to prepare. Um, so I think there's a danger in, in getting too political in these things. Um, and, you know, do you have to tell both sides this, the, the, the China virus story um, that the Chinese government is at fault versus the incompetence of, a, um, of an administration that has just great disdain for uh, um, the administrative state and preparedness and, uh, you know, government functions in general. And so how do we kind of navigate these things? And do we want to? And if we get into those political debates, do we somehow uh, marginalize the actual lives of the people who died? So do we just want to focus on the people who died and what they were doing, um, you know, a kind of victim-centered approach? Or do we want to say, what were the circumstances that led these particular people to die? Why is it that Black people are dying at a greater uh, rate than white people? So, you know, how, how political do we want to get? And what's the danger of then just these people who died become pawns in our political, uh, uh, you know, objectives. Adia, how has that played out in the cases you've looked at? Is there a resistance to politics? I mean, poli there's obviously- you know, Open politics. Yeah. I mean, so I guess that's the, that's the thing. So I was thinking, I was actually thinking about how the CDC would tell the story, seeing as how they've been sidelined in it, mm -hmm. right? So it would probably be a small part of a bigger exhibit about pandemics. Right, it wouldn't actually, and, and they censor themselves, or no, they are censored because they're under the Department of Health and Human Services, that it, the, whatever text they put on the wall goes up the, the line, right? Sure. And so, the, so I could see there could be multiple ways to tell the story. Every, every president gets his own little like center, right? What will Trump center <laughs> have in it? Mm -hmm. wow. Right? What would it look like? Um, so I would say the memorialization of COVID wouldn't necessarily even address death. Hmm. Explicit, if it explicit, if it talks about death, it's going to do it in a clinical manner. Um, if it's if it's coming from one of the sort of you know formal politics, so it coming from a position of formal politics. If it came, so let's say a black health activist group decided to memorialize this in say Detroit or Chicago, it might actually look at lives lived, but it might also try to frame this. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about how I would do it. Yeah. You know, it, it would be a story of, of health disparities, inequity, right. and the nature of work, right? So under what circumstances did we discover what was essential in our society? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Those would be, the kinds of questions that are, you know, a different, a kind, different kind of politics. But I, I actually would think, well, how would the CDC do this? Like knowing what I knew about the sort of sausage making part of that, um, it would look very different. But I think we would have, so actually when I talked to the curator at the CDC, she said, there's a difference between a museum, a memorial, and an archive, you know, because <laughs> uh, I told her. Right, because yeah. I told her, I was like, the yeah. Sierra Leone Museum wants to be an archive. Yeah. It wants to be a memorial. Yeah. It wants to do everything. Yeah. Every kind of memory practice. I, I think that's a, that's a political move to say that there's a memorial, yeah. there's a museum, and there's an archive. I think exactly. when, you, when you go to the uh, memorial and museum at, at, at the World Trade Center site at Ground Zero, they're integrated in a way, and in many ways, the most interesting work being done is the ongoing collection of, of reactions and oral histories and, um, you know, getting people to interact with the site and engage with it. Um, and, you know I, I know, I know how the sausage was made there. And so I have a kind of, I can't go in there objectively. Um, I actually think that the museum people have done a very, what I think is a very good job of navigating the, um, the really challenging politics there. Um, 
but the, you know, the, the museum itself is, is in part a memorial to the victims, but it also tells the stories of the people who responded and who were impacted by the event. Um, and you know, they do have some archival holdings. The, 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 the oral history archives are kind of all over. I don't, I don't know where all of them are. They're, they're in multiple sites. Um, but I think that, the, that when you do a museum or a memorial well, it, it, the meaning obviously changes over time as the families and loved ones who knew the victims you know, recede into memory. Um, but that it, there's something relevant and new for each generation and um, that you can actually learn something, uh, you know, whether you learn about things that you didn't know about or you get a sense of like, wow, we really, this can really happen. Like, because even this doesn't feel real to me in the same way that the shooting down the street from me didn't feel real, even though I knew half of the people who were killed. Um, and so how do we make this thing real for people who aren't experiencing it, um, you know, who are in places where maybe there are three cases or no cases in states like South Dakota, where very few people are currently affected. Um, and so, you know, part of me thinks that we need to do something like that. But then I, I don't want to use the victims to tell I don't want to use the victims for purposes of warning. I feel like we should honor the victims um, and, and understand, you know, maybe why they died. And I think that the, the, the question of work and of uh, who has access to healthcare and um, who's considered essential and why the people we consider essential are often the people we pay the least. Um, you know, a lot of nurses have been saying, I feel like essential, essential means expendable. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, how do we deal with all of these issues um, and it's going to be messy. And a lot of the, a lot of the politics will get buried at the end um, when we're left with something, you know, whatever it is. And do we need a physical memorial or do we just need to keep that, reminding that ourselves the, that this is happening? We're almost up on time, but that was the last point. I just wanted to get maybe a, a quick reaction from each of you on that because we're having this conversation um, across two time zones uh, and across three states and, um, you know, the, the pandemic is playing out globally and slowly. Distance has become part of the way we're thinking about all of this uh, in, our, in our own lives, the way we're working, but also I think the point both of you made in different ways was that this is also a disaster that occurs sort of out of sight, indoors, not for medical professionals, not for people cleaning, but for many people, this is an indoors disaster, which means we don't, we're not experiencing it in some of the normal ways we would, and we're not physically going to the places yet where it's, where it's taken place. This is a discussion I've had for many years with people about memorials, about whether or not we have to physically go to a place to have the kind of, of atonement and closure or political reckoning that memorials enable. Do you think this is gonna be a breakthrough moment? Is this an inflection moment with memorial as it is with so many areas of the way we process culture that this is gonna be a memorial about distance? We're gonna experience it digitally somehow? Or do humans need to physically be at the place, see the grave, etch the name? Adia, I don't know, what do you, does, does that, that resonate? feels deeply ironic is what it feels like. Like it was sort of like, ah. Uh. Know, the one like, thing yeah. that we actually are craving, more I think anything. a lot of us are craving more than anything is to be able to kind of reach out, touch, feel mm -hmm. um, something outside that isn't like, you know, so, so part of me feels like proximity to, if you had this, uh, some kind of memorialization that was reproducing the conditions under which we needed to live, I don't know what that would be like. I think that would happen in 60 years. Mm -hmm. um, to mimic that feeling. It's sort of like when I first went oh. to the, ho the Holocaust Museum. Wow. And they said, we made it cold and we made it like this. So you would actually think about what it must have been like to kind of enter through to, or to go through what these people went through many years ago. But I'm not sure that we, I think that, that it would completely sort of be part of the, it would be a little too real, too much like the thing. Um, you, mean, you mean in the future, I hadn't thought of this, is, that's amazing. In the future, part of capturing this, of course, is they're going to have to build a space in which people in, which people in the future are going to have to experience this distancing. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, assuming that we ever get to the point where we have a vaccine no. and all that stuff, so, right? Yeah. right? That's yeah. an extraordinary insight. Yeah. Um, 
Jay, I'm going to give you last last word on on that or anything else. Adia, thank you for that insight. Yeah, I think I mean I, I I totally agree that part of the, there's this irony that the virus is forcing us apart, and in order to really understand things, we need we sometimes need to be in a space. But that's what we're being denied right now. And so, if you know, whoever creates, if the, if there is a physical memorial, I think that'll be the thing that gets, um, uh, you know, that becomes a theme um, if it's done well. I also think it's really interesting that most of us have very little uh, historical memory of the 1918 or 1957 uh, influenza outbreaks, and they're really deeply interesting. Um, you know, the, the the troops returning from Europe brought the pandemic back to. Uh, the U.S. and Philadelphia, there were, I think there were like 20,000 people who died Absolutely. because they had a big parade for all of these soldiers who were coming back and it just spread like wildfire, literally. Um, and we don't remember that. And so maybe we need like some sort of public health museum that's not just at the National Library of Medicine, um, where we, we don't just remember what's happening now, but we remember that we've forgotten a lot of what's happened in the past and, and trying to bring all of this together. So, so maybe the, maybe the memorial won't be to um, individual people, but will be to these large collectives who, who, uh, who die. And so um, I do think it is deeply ironic that we need some, we need a way of, of making this tragedy uh, palpable or sensible to people, because right now we really only, we have these graphs and we have like, curves and we have visualizations. I think this is a data visualization moment that we haven't, we actually didn't, maybe you'll have, find people to talk about how we're visualizing this because we don't have buildings that are collapsing. We don't have uh, the sea inundating a, a country. We don't have a nuclear power plant. We don't have floods. We don't have a, a rift. We don't have any visualization other than maybe some body bags. I've seen a few pictures of body bags and the, the drone footage of Hart Island where there are mass graves of people um, you know, who are dying from this who aren't being uh, claimed. And so we need a physical space or something physical that makes it real, that makes it human. And I don't know what it is, but I feel like that's something that um, we're gonna have to figure out because if we don't, then it's gonna become like the 1918 and 1957 epidemics where we, we won't remember them. Um, I think you know, memorials give us a chance to remember that something actually happened. Jenny Aronson and Adia Benton, this hour has flown by. Thank you so much for your insight and for your time. And I hope I can come back to you maybe in a few months. Uh, we'll know more. Maybe we'll already begin to see some of these memorial practices taking some sort of physical, physical form. Maybe hopefully we will have been able to go outside and see some of them ourselves, maybe not. But I wanna um, thank everybody for joining us on COVID calls today, remind you, Tomorrow, five o'clock Eastern time, we'll have Lee Clark talking about some of these issues that just came up here about how we visualize disaster and about planning for disaster, an expert in the Cold War, an expert in elite panic, an expert in planning for disaster. Please tune in for that tomorrow. Thank you all for joining me and stay healthy. See you then.